0: The End of Faith, Chapter 3 In the Shadow of God Without warning you are seized and brought before a judge. Did you create a thunderstorm and destroy the village harvest? Did you kill your neighbor with the evil eye? Do you doubt that Christ is bodily present in the Eucharist? You will soon learn that questions of this sort admit of no exculpatory reply. You are not told the names of your accusers, but their identities are of little account. For even if, at this late hour, they were to recant their charges against you, they would merely be punished as false witnesses, while their original accusations would retain their full weight as evidence of your guilt. The machinery of justice has been so well-oiled by faith that it can no longer be influenced. But you have a choice, of sorts. You can concede your guilt and name your accomplices. Yes, you must have had accomplices. No confession will be accepted unless other men and women can be implicated in your crimes. Perhaps you and three acquaintances of your choosing did change into hares and consort with the devil himself. The sight of iron boots, designed to crush your feet, seems to refresh your memory. Yes, Friedrich, Arthur, and Otto are sorcerers, too. Their wives? Witches all. You now face punishment proportionate to the severity of your crimes flogging, a pilgrimage on foot to the Holy Land, forfeiture of property, or, more likely, a period of long imprisonment, probably for life. Your, quote, accomplices will soon be rounded up for torture. Or you can maintain your innocence, which is almost certainly the truth. After all, it is a rare person who can create a thunderstorm. In response, your jailers will be happy to lead you to the furthest reaches of human suffering, before burning you at the stake. You may be imprisoned in total darkness for months or years at a time, repeatedly beaten and starved, or stretched upon the rack. Thumb screws may be applied, or toe screws, or a pear-shaped vise may be inserted into your mouth, vagina, or anus, and forced open until your misery admits of no possible increase. You may be hoisted to the ceiling on a strapato, with your arms bound behind your back and attached to a pulley, and weights tied to your feet. Dislocating your shoulders. To this torment, squassation might be added, which, being often sufficient to cause your death, may yet spare you the agony of the stake. And there's an end note here describing squassation, which was essentially putting someone in the strapado with their arms bound behind their back and hoisting them to the ceiling on the rope and then dropping them and stopping them before they reach the floor so that their arms are wrenched backwards, no doubt breaking the shoulders and much else. Back to the text. If you're unlucky enough to be in Spain, where judicial torture has achieved a transcendent level of cruelty, you may be placed in the Spanish chair, a throne of iron, complete with iron stocks to secure your neck and limbs. In the interest of saving your soul, a coal brazier will be placed beneath your bare feet, slowly roasting them. Because the stain of heresy runs deep, your flesh will be continually larded with fat to keep it from burning too quickly. Or you may be bound to a bench, with a cauldron filled with mice, placed upside down upon your bare abdomen. With the requisite application of heat to the iron, the mice will begin to burrow into your belly in search of an exit. Should you, while in extremis, admit to your torturers that you are indeed a heretic, a sorcerer, or a witch, you will be made to confirm your story before a judge, and any attempt to recant, to claim that your confession has been coerced through torture, will deliver you either to your tormentors once again or directly to the stake. If, once condemned, you repent of your sins, these compassionate and learned men, whose concern for the fate of your eternal soul really knows no bounds will do you the kindness of strangling you before lighting your pyre. The medieval church was quick to observe that the good book was good enough to suggest a variety of means for eradicating heresy, ranging from a communal volley of stones to cremation while alive. A literal reading of the Old Testament not only permits, but requires heretics to be put to death. As it turns out, it was never difficult to find a mob willing to perform this holy office, and to do so purely on the authority of the church, Since it was still a capital offense to possess a Bible in any of the vernacular languages of Europe. In fact, Scripture was not to become generally accessible to the common man until the 16th century. As we noted earlier, Deuteronomy was the preeminent text in every inquisitor's canon, for it explicitly enjoins the faithful to murder anyone in their midst, even members of their own families, who profess a sympathy for foreign gods. Showing a genius for totalitarianism that few mortals have ever fully implemented, The author of this document demands that anyone too squeamish to take part in such religious killing must be killed as well, Deuteronomy chapter 17, verses 12 and 13. Anyone who imagines that no justification for the Inquisition can be found in Scripture need only consult the Bible to have his view of the matter clarified. Quote, If you hear that in one of the towns which Yahweh your God has given you for a home, there are men, scoundrels from your own stock, who have led their fellow citizens astray, saying, Let us go serve other gods, hitherto unknown to you. It is your duty to look into the matter, examine it, and inquire most carefully. If it is proved and confirmed that such a hateful thing has taken place among you, you must put the inhabitants of that town to the sword. You must lay it under the curse of destruction, the town and everything in it. You must pile up all its loot in the public square and burn the town and all its loot, offering it all to Yahweh your God. It is to be a ruin for all time and never rebuilt. Deuteronomy chapter 13, verses 12 through 16. For obvious reasons, the church tended to ignore the final edict, the destruction of heretic property. In addition to demanding that we fulfill every jot and tittle of Old Testament law, Jesus seems to have suggested in John 15, verse 6, Further refinements to the practice of killing heretics and unbelievers. Quote, If a man abide not in me, he is cast forth as a branch, and is withered, and men gather them, and cast them into the fire, and they are burned. End quote. Whether we want to interpret Jesus metaphorically is, of course, our business. The problem with Scripture, however, is that many of its possible interpretations, including most of the literal ones, can be used to justify atrocities in defense of the faith. The Holy Inquisition formally began in 1184 under Pope Lucius III to crush the popular movement of Catharism. The Cathars, from the Greek "katharoi," quote, the pure ones, had fashioned their own brand of Manichaeanism. Mani himself was flayed alive at the behest of Zoroastrian priests in 276, which held that the material world had been created by Satan and was therefore inherently evil. The Cathars were divided by a schism of their own and within each of their sects, by the distinction between the renunciate Perfecti and the lay Credentes, the believers, who revered them. The Perfecti ate no meat, eggs, cheese, or fat, fasted for days at a time, maintained strict celibacy, and abjured all personal wealth. The life of the Perfecti was so austere that most Credentes only joined their ranks once they were safely on their deathbeds, so that, having lived as they pleased, they might yet go to God in holiness. Saint Bernard, who had tried in vain to combat this austere doctrine with that of the church, noted the reasons for his failure. As to the Cathars' conversation, nothing can be less reprehensible. And what they speak, they prove by deeds. As for the morals of the heretic, he cheats no one, he oppresses no one, he strikes no one, his cheeks are pale with fasting, his hands labor for his livelihood. End quote. There seems, in fact, to have been nothing wrong with these people, apart from their attachment to certain unorthodox beliefs about the creation of the world. But heresy is heresy. Any person who believes that the Bible contains the infallible Word of God will understand why these people had to be put to death. The Inquisition took rather genteel steps at first. The use of torture to extract confessions was not officially sanctioned until 1215 at the Fourth Lateran Council. But two developments conspired to lengthen its strides. The first came in 1199, when Pope Innocent III decreed that all property belonging to a convicted heretic would be forfeited to the Church. The Church then shared it with both local officials and the victim's accusers as a reward for their candor. The second was the rise of the Dominican Order. St. Dominic himself, displaying the conviction of every good Catholic of the day, announced to the Cathars, quote, For many years I have exhorted you in vain, with gentleness, preaching, praying, weeping. But according to the proverb of my country, where blessings can accomplish nothing, blows may avail. We shall rouse against you princes and prelates, who, alas, will arm nations and kingdoms against this land. It would appear that sainthood comes in a variety of flavors. With the founding of Dominic's holy order of mendicant friars, the Inquisition was ready to begin its work in earnest. It is important to remember, lest the general barbarity of the time inure us to the horror of these historical accounts, that the perpetrators of the Inquisition, the torturers, informers, and those who commanded their actions, were ecclesiastics of one rank or another. They were men of God, popes, bishops, friars, and priests. They were men who had devoted their lives, in word if not in deed, to Christ as we find him in the New Testament, healing the sick and challenging those without sin to cast the first stone. Quote, in 1234, the canonization of St. Dominic was finally proclaimed in Toulouse, and Bishop Raymond Dufalga was washing his hands in preparation for dinner when he heard the rumor that a fever-ridden old woman in a nearby house was about to undergo the Cathar ritual. The bishop hurried to her bedside and managed to convince her that he was a friend, then interrogated her on her beliefs, then denounced her as a heretic. He called on her to recant. She refused. The bishop thereupon had her bed carried out into a field, and there she was burned. And after the bishop and the friars and their companions had seen their business completed, Brother Guillaume wrote, they returned to the refectory and, giving thanks to God and the blessed Dominic, ate with rejoicing what had been prepared for them. End quote. The question of how the church managed to transform Jesus' principal message of loving one's neighbor and turning the other cheek into a doctrine of murder and rapine. Seems to promise a harrowing mystery, but it is no mystery at all. Apart from the Bible's heterogeneity and outright self contradiction, allowing it to justify diverse and irreconcilable aims, the culprit is clearly the doctrine of faith itself. Whenever a man imagines that he need only believe the truth of a proposition without evidence, that unbelievers will go to hell, that Jews drink the blood of infants, he becomes capable of anything. The practice for which the Inquisition is duly infamous, and the innovation that secured it a steady stream of both suspects and guilty verdicts, was its use of torture to extract confessions from the accused, to force witnesses to testify, and to persuade a confessing heretic to name those with whom he had collaborated in sin. The justification for this behavior came straight from Saint Augustine, who reasoned that if torture was appropriate for those who broke the laws of men, it was even more fitting for those who broke the laws of God. As practiced by medieval Christians, judicial torture was merely a final mad inflection of their faith. That anyone imagined that facts were being elicited by such a lunatic procedure seems a miracle in itself. As Voltaire wrote in 1764, quote, There is something divine here, for it is incomprehensible that men should have patiently borne this yoke. End quote. A contemporaneous account of the Spanish auto de fe the public spectacle at which heretics were sentenced and often burned, will serve to complete our picture. The Spanish Inquisition did not cease its persecution of heretics until 1834, the last auto fe took place in Mexico in 1850, about the time Charles Darwin set sail on the Beagle, and Michael Faraday discovered the relationship between electricity and magnetism. Quote, The condemned are then immediately carried to the Riberia, the place of execution, where there are as many stakes set up as there are prisoners to be burnt, the negative and relapse being first strangled and then burnt, the professed mount their stakes by a ladder, and the Jesuits, after several repeated exhortations to be reconciled to the church, consign them to eternal destruction, and then leave them to the fiend, who they tell them stands at their elbow to carry them into torments. On this a great shout is raised, and the cry is, Let the dog's beards be made, which is done by thrusting flaming bunches of furs Fastened to long poles against their beards, till their faces are burnt black, the surrounding populace rending the air with the loudest acclamations of joy. At last, fire is set to the furs at the bottom of the stake, over which the victims are chained, so high that the flame seldom reaches higher than the seat they sit on, and thus they are rather roasted than burnt. Although there cannot be a more lamentable spectacle, and the sufferers continually cry out as long as they are able, Pity for the love of God! yet it is beheld by persons of all ages and both sexes with transports of joy and satisfaction. And while Protestant reformers broke with Rome on a variety of counts, their treatment of their fellow human beings was no less disgraceful. Public executions were more popular than ever. Heretics were still reduced to ash. Scholars were tortured and killed for impertinent displays of reason. And fornicators were murdered without a qualm. The basic lesson to be drawn from all of this was summed up nicely by Will Durant, quote, "Intolerance is the natural concomitant of strong faith. Tolerance grows only when faith loses certainty. Certainty is murderous." End quote. There really seems to be very little to perplex us here. Burning people who are destined to burn for all time seems a small price to pay to protect the people you love from the same fate. Clearly, the common law marriage between reason and faith, wherein otherwise reasonable men and women can be motivated by the content of unreasonable beliefs, places society on a slippery slope, with confusion and hypocrisy at its heights, and the torments of the Inquisitor waiting below. Witch and Jew Historically, there have been two groups targeted by the Church that deserve special mention. Witches are of particular interest in this context because their persecution required an extraordinary degree of credulity to get underway. For the simple reason that a confederacy of witches in medieval Europe seems never to have existed. There were no covens of pagan dissidents, meeting in secret, betrothed to Satan, abandoning themselves to the pleasures of group sex, cannibalism, and the casting of spells upon neighbors, crops, and cattle. It seems that such notions were the product of folklore, vivid dreams, and sheer confabulation, and confirmed by confessions elicited under the most gruesome torture. Anti-Semitism is of interest here, both for the scale of the injustice that it has wrought and for its explicitly theological roots. From the perspective of Christian teaching, Jews are even worse than run-of-the-mill heretics. They are heretics who explicitly repudiate the divinity of Jesus Christ. While the stigmas applied to witches and Jews throughout Christendom shared curious similarities, Both were often accused of the lively and improbable offense of murdering Christian infants and drinking their blood. Their cases remain quite distinct. Witches, in all likelihood, did not even exist, and those murdered in their stead numbered perhaps forty to 50,000 over 300 years of persecution. Off-text here. In an end note here, I report that the numbers of people killed by the Inquisition is routinely exaggerated. Some people talk about millions of people being killed as witches and warlocks, and that doesn't seem to have occurred. Best current estimate that I'm aware of is somewhere around 40 to 50,000. Back to the text. Jews have lived side by side with Christians for nearly two millennia, fathered their religion, and for reasons that are no more substantial than those underlying the belief in the resurrection, have been the objects of murderous intolerance since the first centuries after Christ. The accounts of witch hunts resemble in most respects the more widespread persecution of heretics throughout the Inquisition. Imprisonment on the basis of accusations alone, torture to extract confession, confessions deemed unacceptable until accomplices were named, death by slow fire, and the rounding up of the freshly accused. The following anecdote is typical. Quote, In 1595, an old woman residing in a village near Constance, angry at not being invited to share the sports of the country people on a day of public rejoicing, was heard to mutter something to herself and was afterwards seen to proceed through the fields towards a hill where she was lost sight of. A violent thunderstorm arose about two hours afterwards, which wet the dancers to the skin and did considerable damage to the plantations. This woman, suspected before of witchcraft, was seized and imprisoned, and accused of having raised the storm by filling a hole with wine and stirring it about with a stick. She was tortured till she confessed, and burned alive the next evening. Though it is difficult to generalize about many of the factors that conspired to make villagers rise up against their neighbors, it is obvious that a belief in the existence of witches was the sine qua non of the phenomenon. But what was it, precisely, that people believed? They appear to have believed that their neighbors were having sex with the devil, enjoying nocturnal flights upon broomsticks, changing into cats and hares, and eating the flesh of other human beings. More important, they believed utterly in maleficium, that is, in the efficacy of harming others by occult means. Among the many disasters that could befall a person over the course of a short and difficult life, medieval Christians seemed especially concerned that their neighbor might cast a spell and thereby undermine their health or good fortune. Only the advent of science could successfully undercut such an idea, along with the fantastical displays of cruelty to which it gave rise. We must remember that it was not until the mid-19th century that the germ theory of disease emerged, laying to rest much superstition about the causes of illness. Occult beliefs of this sort are clearly an inheritance from our primitive magic-minded ancestors. The four people of New Guinea, for instance, besides being enthusiastic cannibals, exacted a gruesome revenge upon suspected sorcerers. Quote, Besides attending public meetings, four men also hunted down men they believed to be sorcerers and killed them in reprisal. The hunters used a specialized attack called tukabu against sorcerers. They ruptured their kidneys, crushed their genitals, and broke their thigh bones with stone axes, bit into their necks and tore out their tracheas, and jam bamboo splinters into their veins to bleed them." No doubt each of these gestures held metaphysical significance. This behavior seems to have been commonplace among the four, at least until the 1960s. The horrible comedy of human ignorance achieves a rare moment of transparency here. The four were merely responding to an epidemic of kuru, a fatal spongiform infection of the brain, brought on not by sorcerers in their midst, but by their own religious observance of eating the bodies and brains of their dead. Throughout the Middle Ages and the Renaissance, it was perfectly apparent that disease could be inflicted by demons and black magic. There are accounts of frail old women charged with killing able-bodied men and breaking the necks of their horses, actions which they were made to confess under torture, and few people, it seems, found such accusations implausible. Even the relentless torture of the accused was given a perverse rationale. The devil, it was believed, made his charges insensible to pain, despite their cries for mercy. And so it was that for centuries, men and women who were guilty of little more than being ugly, old, widowed, or mentally ill, were convicted of impossible crimes and then murdered for God's sake. After nearly 400 years, some ecclesiastics began to appreciate how insane all this was. Consider the epiphany of Frederick Spee. Quote, Torture fills our Germany with witches and unheard of wickedness, and not only Germany, but any nation that attempts it. If all of us have not confessed ourselves witches, that is only because we have not all been tortured." But Spee was led to this reasonable surmise only after a skeptical friend, the Duke of Brunswick, had a woman suspected of witchcraft artfully tortured and interrogated in his presence. This poor woman testified that she had seen Spee himself on the Brocken shape-shifting into a wolf, a goat, and other beasts, and fathering numerous children by the assembled witches, born with the heads of toads and the legs of spiders. Spee, lucky indeed to be in the company of a friend, and certain of his own innocence, immediately set to work on his Cauchio Criminalis, published in 1631, which detailed the injustice of the witch trials. Bertrand Russell observed, however, that not all reasonable men were as fortunate as Spee. Some few bold rationalists ventured, even while the persecution was at its height, to doubt whether tempests, hailstorms, thunder, and lightning were really caused by the machinations of women. Such men were shown no mercy. Thus, towards the end of the 16th century, Flade, rector of the University of Treves, and judge for the electoral court, after condemning countless witches, began to think that perhaps their confessions were due to the desire to escape the tortures of the rack with the result that he showed unwillingness to convict. He was accused of having sold himself to Satan and was subjected to the same tortures he had inflicted upon others. Like them, he confessed his guilt, and in 1589 he was strangled and then burnt. End quote. As late as 1718, just as the inoculation against smallpox was being introduced in England and the English mathematician Brooke Taylor was making refinements to the calculus, we find the madness of the witch-hunt still a potent force. Charles McKay relates an incident in Caithness, northeast Scotland. Quote, a silly fellow named William Montgomery, a carpenter, had a mortal antipathy to cats, and somehow or other these animals generally chose his backyard as the scene for their catawallons. He puzzled his brains for a long time to know why he, above all his neighbors, should be so pestered. At last he came to the sage conclusion that his tormentors were no cats, but witches. In this opinion, he was supported by his maid servant, who swore a round oath that she had often heard the aforesaid cats talking together in human voices. The next time the unlucky tabbies assembled in his backyard, the valiant carpenter was on the alert. Arming himself with an axe, a dirk, and a broadsword, he rushed out among them. One of them he wounded in the back, a second in the hip, and the leg of a third he maimed with his axe. But he could not capture any of them. A few days afterward, two old women of the parish died, and it was said that when their bodies were laid out, there appeared on the back of one the mark as of a recent wound and a similar scar upon the hip of the other. The carpenter and his maid were convinced that they were the very cats, and the whole county repeated the same story. Everyone was upon the lookout for proofs corroborative. A very remarkable one was soon discovered. Nancy Gilbert, a wretched old creature upwards of seventy years of age, was found in bed with her leg broken. As she was ugly enough for a witch, it was asserted that she was one of the cats that had fared so ill at the hands of the carpenter. The latter, when informed of the popular suspicion, asserted that he distinctly remembered to have struck one of the cats a blow with the back of his broadsword, which ought to have broken her leg. Nancy was immediately dragged from her bed and thrown into prison. Before she was put to torture, she explained in a very natural and intelligible manner how she had broken her limb but this account did not give satisfaction. The professional persuasions of the torturer made her tell a different tale, and she confessed that she was indeed a witch and had been wounded by Montgomery on the night stated, and the two old women recently deceased were witches also, besides about a score of others whom she named. The poor creature suffered so much by the removal from her own home and the tortures inflicted upon her that she died the next day in prison. End quote. Apart from observing, yet again, the astonishing consequences of certain beliefs. We should take note of the reasonable way these witch hunters attempted to confirm their suspicions. They looked for correlations that held apparent significance. Not any old woman would do. They needed one who had suffered a wound similar to the one inflicted upon the cat. Once you accept the premise that old women can shapeshift into cats and back again, the rest is practically science. The Church did not officially condemn the use of torture until the bull of Pope Pius VII, in 1816. Going off text here, if you don't know Charles McKay, he wrote this really entertaining book entitled Extraordinary Popular Delusions and the Madness of Crowds, and that was published in 1841. One chapter there is on the witch hysteria, which is very entertaining to read. Back to the text. Anti-Semitism is as integral to church doctrine as the flying buttress is to a Gothic cathedral. And this terrible truth has been published in Jewish blood since the first centuries of the Common Era. Like that of the Inquisition, the history of antisemitism can scarcely be given sufficient treatment in the context of this book. I raise the subject, however briefly, because the irrational hatred of Jews has produced a spectrum of effects that have been most acutely felt in our own time. Antisemitism is intrinsic to both Christianity and Islam. Both traditions consider Jews to be bunglers of God's initial revelation. Christians generally believe that Jews murdered Christ and their continued existence as Jews constitutes a perverse denial of his status as the Messiah. Whatever the context, hatred of Jews remains a product of faith, Christian, Muslim, as well as Jewish. Contemporary Muslim antisemitism is heavily indebted to its Christian counterparts. The Protocols of the Elders of Zion, a Russian anti-Semitic forgery that is the source of most conspiracy theories relating to the Jews, is now considered an authoritative text in the Arab-speaking world. As a sidebar here, I should say it's it's actually cited in the founding charter of Hamas, the democratically elected government in Gaza. Back to the text. A recent contribution to Al-Akbar, one of Cairo's mainstream newspapers, suggests that the problem of Muslim anti-Semitism is now deeper than any handshake in the White House Rose Garden can remedy. Quote, of blessed memory, who on behalf of the Palestinians took revenge in advance against the most vile criminals on the face of the earth, although we do have one complaint against him, for his revenge was not enough. End quote. This is from moderate Cairo, where Muslims drink alcohol, go to the movies, and watch belly dancing, and where the government actively represses fundamentalism. Clearly hatred of the Jews is white hot in the Muslim world. While things obviously have changed a little bit, in Egypt since the Arab Spring and then changed back again. Still, the picture of anti-Semitism in the Muslim world is just mind-boggling, and you can watch videos on memory, m-e-m-r-i.org, that have been translated from the Arab press. There's just no end. Once you go down that rabbit hole, there is no end to the evidence of a genocidal hatred of Jews that is deeper and wider than anything that is conceivably motivated by the political collision between the Palestinians and Israel. Back to the text. The gravity of Jewish suffering over the ages, culminating in the Holocaust, makes it almost impossible to entertain any suggestion that the Jews might have brought their troubles upon themselves. This is, however, in a rather narrow sense, the truth. Prior to the rise of the church, Jews became the objects of suspicion and occasional persecution for their refusal to assimilate, for the insularity and professed superiority of their religious culture, that is, for the content of their own unreasonable sectarian beliefs. The dogma of a, quote, chosen people, while at least implicit in most faiths, achieved a stridence in Judaism that was unknown in the ancient world. Among cultures that worshipped a plurality of gods, The later monotheism of the Jews proved indigestible, and while their explicit demonization as a people required the mad work of the Christian church, the ideology of Judaism remains a lightning rod for intolerance to this day. As a system of beliefs, it appears among the least suited to survive in a theological state of nature. Christianity and Islam both acknowledge the sanctity of the Old Testament and offer easy conversion to their faiths. Islam honors Abraham, Moses, and Jesus as forerunners of Muhammad. Hinduism embraces almost anything in sight with its manifold arms. Many Hindus, for instance, consider Jesus an avatar of Vishnu. Judaism alone finds itself surrounded by unmitigated errors. It seems little wonder, therefore, that it has drawn so much sectarian fire. Jews, insofar as they are religious, believe that they are bearers of a unique covenant with God. As a consequence, they have spent the last 2,000 years collaborating with those who see them as different by seeing themselves as irretrievably so. Judaism is as intrinsically divisive, as ridiculous in its literalism, and is as at odds with the civilizing insights of modernity as any other religion. Jewish settlers, by exercising their, quote, freedom of belief on contested land, are now one of the principal obstacles to peace in the Middle East. They will be the direct cause of war between Islam and the West should one ever erupt over the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. Going off text here, this passage has been quite controversial. I have had Muslims and their liberal apologists cynically claim that I blame the Jews for the Holocaust here. On the other side, of course, I'm often accused of never criticizing Judaism. I hope the point I'm making here is clear. Anti-Semitism is in part the result of the fact that Jews see themselves as Jews, a distinct people who must at any cost resist assimilating. And they have a religion that does not seek converts. It's not a missionary faith. And it's a religion that they claim is superior to all others. In fact, it's the only one that's true. So it, it is a, it's easy to see how they are, and I say this as an ethnic Jew, Judaism is in part responsible for preparing the context for this ancient hatred. Jew hatred precedes Christianity in part because of the character of Judaism. Back to the text. The problem for first century Christians was simple. They belonged to a sect of Jews that had recognized Jesus as the Messiah. The Greek word is Christos. Their co-religionists had not. Jesus was a Jew, of course, and his mother a Jewess. His apostles, to the last man, were also Jews. There's no evidence whatsoever, apart from the tendentious writings of the later church, that Jesus ever conceived of himself as anything other than a Jew among Jews, seeking the fulfillment of Judaism and likely the return of Jewish sovereignty in a Roman world. As many authors have observed, the numerous strands of Hebrew prophecy that were made to coincide with Jesus' ministry betray the apologetics and often poor scholarship of the Gospel writers. The writers of Luke and Matthew, for instance, in seeking to make the life of Jesus conform to Old Testament prophecy, insist that Mary conceived as a virgin. The Greek word is parthenos. Harking to the Greek rendering of Isaiah, chapter 7, verse 14, unfortunately for fanciers of Mary's virginity, the Hebrew word Alma, for which Parthenos is an erroneous translation, simply means young woman, without any implication of virginity. It seems all but certain that the Christian dogma of the virgin birth and much of the church's resulting anxiety about sex was the result of a mistranslation from the Hebrew. Another strike against the doctrine of the virgin birth is that the other evangelists, Mark and John, seem to know nothing about it, though both appear troubled by accusations of Jesus' illegitimacy. Paul apparently thinks that Jesus is the son of Joseph and Mary. He refers to Jesus as being, quote, born of the seed of David, according to the flesh, Romans 1 3, meaning Joseph was his father, and, quote, born of woman, Galatians 4 4, meaning that Jesus was really human with no reference to Mary's virginity. Mary's virginity has always been suggestive of God's attitude towards sex. It is intrinsically sinful, being the mechanism through which original sin was bequeathed to the generations after Adam. It would appear that Western civilization has endured two millennia of consecrated sexual neurosis simply because the authors of Matthew and Luke couldn't read Hebrew. For the Jews, the true descendants of Jesus and the apostles, the dogma of the virgin birth Has served as a perennial justification for their persecution because it has been one of the principal pieces of, quote, evidence demonstrating the divinity of Jesus. We should note that the emphasis on miracles in the New Testament, along with the attempts to make the life of Jesus conform to Old Testament prophecy, reveal the first Christian's commitment, however faltering, to making the faith seem rational. Given the obvious significance of any miracle and the widespread acceptance of prophecy, it would have been only reasonable. To have considered these purported events to be evidence for Christ's divinity. Augustine, for his part, came right out and said it quote, I should not be a Christian but for the miracles. End quote. A millennium later, Blaise Pascal, mathematical prodigy, philosopher, and physicist, was so impressed by Christ's confirmation of prophecy that he devoted the last years of his short life to defending Christian doctrine in writing quote, Through Jesus we know God. All those who have claimed to know God and prove his existence without Jesus Christ have only had futile proofs to offer. But to prove Christ, we have the prophecies, which are solid and palpable proofs. By being fulfilled and proved true by the event, these prophecies show that these truths are certain and thus prove that Jesus is divine. End quote. Solid and palpable? That so nimble a mind could be led to labor under such dogma was surely one of the great wonders of the age. And there's an end note here where I give a quote from Nietzsche. I said Nietzsche had it right when he wrote, quote, The most pitiful example, the corruption of Pascal, who believed in the corruption of his reason through original sin when it had, in fact, been corrupted only by his Christianity. End quote. I go on to write in this end note, It's true that Pascal had what was for him an astonishing contemplative experience on the night of November 23, 1654, one that converted him entirely to Jesus Christ. I do not doubt the power of such experiences, but it seems to me self-evident that they are no more the exclusive property of devout Christians than are tears shed in joy. Hindus, Buddhists, Muslims, Jews, along with animists of every description, have had these experiences throughout history. Pascal, being highly intelligent and greatly learned, should have known this. That he did not, or chose to disregard it, testifies to the stultifying effect of orthodoxy. And back to the main text. Even today, the apparent confirmation of prophecy detailed in the New Testament is offered as the chief reason to accept Jesus as the Messiah. The, quote, leap of faith is really a fiction. No Christians, not even those of the first century, have ever been content to rely upon it. While God had made his covenant with Israel and delivered his son in the guise of a Jew, the earliest Christians were increasingly Gentile, and as the doctrine spread, the newly baptized began to see the Jews' denial of Jesus' divinity as the consummate evil. This sectarian ethos is already well established by the time of Paul. For ye, brethren, became followers of the churches of God which in Judea are in Christ Jesus, For ye also like things of your own countrymen, even as they have of the Jews, who both killed the Lord Jesus and their own prophets, and have persecuted us, and they please not God, and are contrary to all men, forbidding us to speak to the Gentiles, that they might be saved, to fill up their sins all way, for the wrath has come upon them to the uttermost. And that's Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 14 to 16. The explicit demonization of the Jews appears in the Gospel of John, chapter 8, verses 41 to 45. Quote, Jesus said unto them, them is the Jews in this context, If God were your Father, ye would love me, for I proceeded forth and came from God. Neither came I of myself, but he sent me. Why do ye not understand my speech, even because ye cannot hear my word? Ye are of your father the devil and the lusts of your father ye will do. He was a murderer from the beginning, and abode not in the truth, because there is no truth in him. Whenever he speaketh a lie, he speaketh of his own, for he is a liar, and the father of it. Because I tell you the truth, ye believe me not. With the destruction of the temple in 70 CE, Christians, Gentile and Jew alike, felt that they were witnessing the fulfillment of prophecy imagining that Roman legions were meting out God's punishment to the betrayers of Christ. antisemitism soon acquired a triumphal smugness, and with the ascension of Christianity as the state religion, in 312 CE, with the conversion of Constantine, Christians began to openly relish and engineer the degradation of world Jewry. Laws were passed that revoked many of the civic privileges previously granted to Jews. Jews were excluded from the military and from holding high office and were forbidden to proselytize or to have sexual relations with Christian women, both under penalty of death. The Justinian Code, in the 6th century, essentially declared the legal status of Jews null and void, outlawing the Mishnah, the codification of Jewish oral law, and making disbelief in the resurrection and the last judgment a capital offense. Augustine, ever the ready sectarian, rejoiced at the subjugation of the Jews and took special pleasure in the knowledge that they were doomed to wander the earth, bearing witness to the truth of Scripture and the salvation of the Gentiles. The suffering and servitude of the Jews was proof that Christ had been the Messiah after all. Like witches, the Jews of Europe were often accused of incredible crimes, the most prevalent of which has come to be known as the blood libel, born of the belief that Jews require the blood of Christians, generally newborn, for use in a variety of rituals. Throughout the Middle Ages, Jews were regularly accused of murdering Christian infants, a crime for which they were duly despised. It was also known that all Jews menstruated, male and female alike, and required the blood of a Christian to replenish their lost stores. They also suffered from terrible hemorrhoids and oozing sores as a punishment for the murder of Christ and as a retort to their improbable boast before the, quote, innocent Pontius Pilate in Matthew twenty-seven twenty-five. Quote, His blood be on us and on our children, It should come as no surprise that the Jews were in the habit of applying Christian blood as a salve upon these indignities. Christian blood was also said to ease the labor pains of any Jewess fortunate enough to have it spread upon pieces of parchment and placed into her clenched fists. It was common knowledge, too, that all Jews were born blind, and that when smeared upon their eyes, Christian blood granted them the faculty of sight. Jewish boys were frequently born with their fingers attached to their foreheads, and only the blood of a Christian could allow this pensive gesture to be broken without risk to the child. Once born, a Jew's desire for Christian blood could scarcely be slaked. During the rite of circumcision, it took the place of consecrated oil, chrism, an exclusively Christian commodity. And later in life, Jewish children of both sexes had their genitalia smeared with the blood of some poor, pious man, waylaid upon the road and strangled in a ditch to make them fertile. Medieval Christians believed that Jews used their blood for everything from a rouge to a love filter and as a prophylactic against leprosy. Given this state of affairs, who could doubt that Jews of all ages would be fond of sucking blood out of Christian children, quote, with quills and small reeds for later use by their elders during wedding feasts? Finally, with a mind to covering all their bases, Jews smeared their dying brethren with the blood of an innocent Christian babe, recently baptized and then suffocated, saying, If the Messiah promised by the prophets has really come, and he be Jesus, may this innocent blood ensure for you eternal life. The blood libel totters on the shoulders of other giant misconceptions, of course, especially the notion, widely accepted at the time, that the various constituents of the human body possess magical and medicinal power. This explains the acceptance of similar accusations leveled at witches, such as the belief that candles made from human fat could render a man invisible while lighting up his surroundings. One wonders just how many a thief was caught striding through his neighbor's foyer in search of plunder, bearing a malodorous candle confidently aloft, before these miraculous tools of subterfuge fell out of fashion. But for sheer gothic absurdity, nothing surpasses the medieval concern over host desecration the punishment of which preoccupied pious Christians for centuries. The doctrine of transubstantiation was formally established in 1215 at the Fourth Lateran Council, the same one that sanctioned the use of torture by inquisitors and prohibited Jews from owning land or embarking upon civil or military careers, and thereafter became the centerpiece of Christian, now Catholic, faith. The relevant passage from the profession of faith of the Roman Catholic was cited in chapter 2. Henceforth. It was an indisputable fact of this world that the communion host is actually transformed at the Mass into the living body of Jesus Christ. After this incredible dogma had been established, by mere reiteration to the satisfaction of everyone, Christians began to worry that these living wafers might be subjected to all manner of mistreatment and even physical torture at the hands of heretics and Jews. One might wonder why eating the body of Jesus would be any less of a torment to him. But could there be any doubt that the Jews would seek to harm the Son of God again knowing that his body was now readily accessible in the form of defenseless crackers? Historical accounts suggest that as many as 3,000 Jews were murdered in response to a single allegation of this imaginary crime. The crime of host desecration was punished throughout Europe for centuries. It is out of this history of theologically mandated persecution that secular anti-Semitism emerged. Even explicitly anti-Christian movements, as in the case of German Nazism and Russian Socialism, managed to inherit and enact the doctrinal intolerance of the church. Astonishingly, ideas as spurious as the blood libel are still very much with us, having found a large cult of believers in the Muslim world. The Holocaust Quote, The national socialism of all of us is anchored in uncritical loyalty, in the surrender to the Fuhrer, that does not ask for the why in individual cases, in the silent execution of his orders. We believe that the Fuhrer is obeying a higher call to fashion German history. There can be no criticism of this belief. And this is from a speech given by Rudolf Hess in June 1934. The rise of Nazism in Germany required much in the way of, quote, uncritical loyalty. Beyond the abject and religious loyalty to Hitler, the Holocaust emerged out of people's acceptance of some very implausible ideas. Quote, Heinrich Himmler thought the SS should have leeks and mineral water for breakfast. He thought people could be made to confess by telepathy. Following King Arthur and the Round Table, he would have only 12 people to dinner. He believed that Aryans had not evolved from monkeys and apes like other races, but had come down to earth from the heavens, where they had been preserved in ice from the beginning of time. He established a meteorology division, which was given the task of proving this cosmic ice theory. He also thought that he was a reincarnation of Heinrich I. Himmler was an extreme case. The picture is perhaps of someone quite mad, but one of his characteristics was much more widely shared. His mind had not been encouraged to grow, Filled with information and opinion, he had no critical powers. At the heart of every totalitarian enterprise, one sees outlandish dogmas, poorly arranged, but working ineluctably like the gears in some ludicrous instrument of death. Nazism evolved out of a variety of economic and political factors, of course, but it was held together by a belief in the racial purity and superiority of the German people. The obverse of this fascination with race was the certainty that all impure elements – homosexuals, invalids, gypsies, and above all Jews – posed a threat to the fatherland. And while the hatred of Jews in Germany expressed itself in a predominantly secular way, it was a direct inheritance from medieval Christianity. For centuries, religious Germans had viewed Jews as the worst species of heretics and attributed every societal ill to their continued presence among the faithful. Daniel Goldhagen has traced the rise of the German conception of the Jews as a, quote, race and a nation, which culminated in an explicitly nationalistic formulation of this ancient Christian animus. Of course, the religious demonization of the Jews was also a contemporary phenomenon. Indeed, the Vatican itself perpetuated the blood libel in its newspapers as late as 1914. Ironically, the very fact that the Jews had been mistreated in Germany and elsewhere since time immemorial by being confined to ghettos and deprived of civic status, gave rise to the modern secular strand of anti-Semitism. For it was not until the emancipation efforts of the early 19th century that the hatred of the Jews acquired an explicitly racial inflection. Even the self-proclaimed Friends of the Jews, who sought the admission of Jews into German society with the full privileges of citizenship, did so only on the assumption that the Jews could be reformed thereby, and rendered pure by sustained association with the German race. Thus, the voices of liberal tolerance within Germany were often as anti-Semitic as their conservative opponents, for they differed only in the belief that the Jew was capable of moral regeneration. By the end of the 19th century, after the liberal experiment had failed to dissolve the Jews into the pristine solvent of German tolerance, the erstwhile friends of the Jews came to regard these strangers in their midst with the same loathing that their less idealistic contemporaries had nurtured all along. An analysis of prominent anti-Semitic writers and publications from 1861 to 1895 reveals just how murderous the German anti-Semites were inclined to be. Fully two-thirds of those that purported to offer, quote, solutions to the, quote, Jewish problem openly advocated the physical extermination of the Jews. And this, as Goldhagen points out, was several decades before the rise of Hitler. Indeed, the possibility of exterminating a whole people was considered before genocide was even a proper concept, and long before killing on such a massive scale had been shown to be practically feasible in the First and Second World Wars. While Goldhagen's controversial charge that the Germans were Hitler's, quote, willing executioners seems generally fair, it is true that people of other nations were equally willing. Genocidal anti-Semitism had been in the air for some time, particularly in Eastern Europe. In the year 1919, for instance, 60,000 Jews were murdered in Ukraine alone. Once the Third Reich began its overt persecution of Jews, anti-Semitic pogroms erupted in Poland, Romania, Hungary, Austria, Czechoslovakia, Croatia, and elsewhere. With the passage of the Nuremberg Laws in 1935, the transformation of German anti-Semitism was complete. The Jews were to be considered a race, one that was inimical to a healthy Germany in principle. As such, they were fundamentally irredeemable. For while one can cast away one's religious ideology and even accept baptism into the church, one cannot cease to be what one is. And it is here that we encounter the overt complicity of the church in the attempted murder of an entire people. German Catholics showed themselves remarkably acquiescent to a racist creed that was at cross purposes with at least one of their core beliefs. For if baptism truly had the power to redeem, then Jewish converts should have been considered saved without residue in the eyes of the Church. But as we have seen, coherence in any system of beliefs is never perfect, and the German churches, in order to maintain order during their services, were finally obliged to print leaflets, admonishing their flock not to attack Jewish converts during times of worship. That a person's race could not be rescinded was understood as early as 1880, in a Vatican-approved paper. Quote, Oh, how wrong and deluded are those who think Judaism is just a religion, like Catholicism, Paganism, Protestantism, and not in fact a race, a people, a nation. For the Jews are not only Jews because of their religion, they are Jews also, and especially, because of their race. End quote. The German Catholic Episcopate issued its own guidelines in 1936. Quote, race, soil, blood, and people are precious natural values. Which God the Lord has created and the care of which He has entrusted to us Germans. End quote. But the truly sinister complicity of the Church came in its willingness to open its genealogical records to the Nazis and thereby enable them to trace the extent of a person's Jewish ancestry. A historian of the Catholic Church, Gunther Louis, has written quote, The very question of whether the Church could lend its help to the Nazi state in sorting out people of Jewish descent was never debated. On the contrary, quote, we have always unselfishly worked for the people without regard to gratitude or ingratitude, end quote. A priest wrote in Klerusblatt in September 1934, quote, we shall also do our best to help in this service to the people, end quote. And the operation of the church in this matter continued right through the war years, when the price of being Jewish was no longer dismissal from a government job and loss of livelihood, but deportation and outright physical destruction, end quote. All of this despite the fact that the Catholic Church was in very real opposition to much of the Nazi platform, which was bent upon curtailing its power. Goldhagen also reminds us that not a single German Catholic was excommunicated before, during, or after the war. Quote, after committing crimes as great as any in human history. End quote. This is really an extraordinary fact. Throughout this period, the Church continued to excommunicate theologians and scholars in droves, For holding unorthodox views, and to prescribe books by the hundreds, and yet not a single perpetrator of genocide, of whom there were countless examples, succeeded in furrowing Pope Pius XII's censorious brow. This astonishing situation merits a slight digression. At the end of the 19th century, the Vatican attempted to combat the unorthodox conclusions of modern Bible commentators with its own rigorous scholarship. Catholic scholars were urged to adopt the techniques of modern criticism to demonstrate that the results of a meticulous and dispassionate study of the Bible could be compatible with church doctrine. The movement was known as modernism and soon occasioned considerable embarrassment, as many of the finest Catholic scholars found that they too were becoming skeptical about the literal truth of Scripture. In 1893, Pope Leo XIII announced, quote, All those books, which the church regards as sacred and canonical, were written with all their parts, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Now, far from admitting the coexistence of error, divine inspiration by itself excludes all error, and that also of necessity, since God, the supreme truth, must be incapable of teaching error. End quote. In 1907, Pope Pius X declared modernism a heresy, and had its exponents within the Church excommunicated, and put all critical studies of the Bible on the index of proscribed books. Authors similarly distinguished include Descartes, Montaigne, Locke, Swift, Swedenborg, Voltaire, Diderot, Rousseau, Gibbon, Paine, Stern, Kant, Flaubert, and Darwin. As a censorious afterthought, Descartes' meditations were added to the index in 1948. With all that had occurred earlier in the decade, one might have thought the Holy See could have found greater offenses with which to concern itself. Although not a single leader of the Third Reich, not even Hitler himself, was ever excommunicated, Galileo was not absolved of heresy until 1992. In the words of the present pope, John Paul II, we can see how the matter now stands. Quote, This revelation is definitive. One can only accept it or reject it. One can accept it professing belief in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, the Son, of the same substance as the Father and the Holy Spirit, who is Lord and the giver of life, or one can reject all of this. Quote. While the rise and fall of modernism in the church can hardly be considered a victory for the forces of rationality, it illustrates an important point. Wanting to know how the world is leaves one vulnerable to new evidence. It is no accident that religious doctrine and honest inquiry are so rarely juxtaposed When we consider that so few generations have passed since the Church left off disemboweling innocent men before the eyes of their families, burning old women alive in public squares, and torturing scholars to the point of madness for merely speculating about the nature of the stars, it is perhaps little wonder that it failed to think that anything had gone terribly amiss in Germany during the war years. Indeed, it is also well known that certain Vatican officials, the most notorious of whom was Bishop Alois Hudal helped members of the SS like Adolf Eichmann, Martin Bormann, Heinrich Müller, Franz Stangl, and hundreds of others escape to South America and the Middle East in the aftermath of the war. In this context, one is often reminded that others in the Vatican helped Jews escape as well. This is true. It is also true, however, that Vatican aid was often contingent upon whether or not the Jews in question had been previously baptized. Jumping off text for a second. Just think about those details. Just mind-boggling. Every one of those details. Imagine the Vatican functionary who inquires whether or not certain Jews were baptized before saving them. The mind reels. Back to the text. There were no doubt innumerable instances in which European Christians risked their lives to protect the Jews in their midst and did so because of their Christianity but they were not innumerable enough. The fact that people are sometimes inspired to heroic acts of kindness by the teaching of Christ says nothing about the wisdom or necessity of believing that he exclusively was the Son of God. Indeed, we will find that we need not believe anything on insufficient evidence to feel compassion for the suffering of others. Our common humanity is reason enough to protect our fellow human beings from coming to harm. Genocidal intolerance, on the other hand, must inevitably find its inspiration elsewhere. Whenever you hear that people have begun killing non-combatants intentionally and indiscriminately, ask yourself what dogma stands at their backs. What do these freshly minted killers believe? You will find that it is always, always preposterous. My purpose in this chapter has been to intimate, in as concise a manner as possible, some of the terrible consequences that have arisen logically and inevitably out of Christian faith. Unfortunately, this catalogue of horrors could be elaborated upon indefinitely. Auschwitz, the Cathar heresy, the witch hunts. These phrases signify depths of human depravity and human suffering that would surely elude description were a writer to set himself no other task. As I have cast a very wide net in the present chapter, I can only urge readers who may feel that they have just been driven past a roadside accident at full throttle, to consult the literature on these subjects. Such extracurricular studies will reveal that the history of Christianity is principally a story of mankind's misery and ignorance, rather than of its requited love of God. While Christianity has few living inquisitors today, Islam has many. In the next chapter, we will see that in our opposition to the worldview of Islam, we confront a civilization with an arrested history. It is as though a portal in time has opened, and 14th-century hordes are pouring into our world. Unfortunately, they are now armed with 21st-century weapons. Okay, well, that was the third chapter of The End of Faith. That's actually the chapter that Hitch anthologized in The Portable Atheist. He asked me to send him whichever section of the book I recommended, and I sent something else, I forget what, but he made an executive decision and pick the chapter you just heard without any input from me. So that's why that chapter's in that book, which was a pleasant surprise, actually. In any case, if you guys continue to find these audiobook podcasts valuable, I will press on and read the rest of The End of Faith. Some chapters will probably elicit more sidebar commentary from me than others. This chapter, being mostly a matter of history, didn't require so much further reflection from me. As it turns out, my position on burning witches has remained pretty much the same over the years. I'm still against it. And as always, if you find The Waking Up Podcast valuable, you can support it through my website at samharris.org forward slash support. And many more of you have begun supporting the podcast since my last AMA, which is great. There have been a few questions from those of you who've just started supporting the podcast, which I should answer many have asked whether it's better to support it through my website with a one-time or monthly donation or through the Patreon page, which is also linked from my website. The answer to that question isn't totally straightforward, so I'll just give you the facts. Patreon takes a cut of every donation. I think it's about five percent. So, in that sense, it's worse, but Patreon allows you to donate on a per-episode basis rather than just one time or monthly which actually makes a lot of sense. I really think that's a great model for a podcast. And you can cap it each month so that if I go berserk and release 15 episodes in one month, like Joe Rogan, you won't be charged more than you want for the month. So that's why I have that page. On the other hand, if you're happy just giving monthly, regardless of how many podcasts come out in any one month, well, then doing that through my website is actually better because there's no middleman. But any support is obviously greatly appreciated, and small amounts can make a huge difference. As I said last time around, if just 10 percent of listeners valued the podcast at the price of a cup of coffee, we would be in entirely new terrain here. Now, we're nearing about two percent listener support at this point, and that's up by about 50 percent since the last episode. And again, there are additional ways to help. You can bookmark my Amazon affiliates link, and that link is also available at samharris.org forward slash support. And as I say in the final bit of audio that will follow the closing music in a moment, putting reviews on iTunes or anywhere else is really helpful. You might not think that would matter, but it actually matters a lot when it comes to attracting new listeners. And needless to say, sharing these episodes with others in your life or on social media is a huge help. The whole point of what I'm doing here is to spread ideas. So actually sharing the podcast is fantastic. As always, thanks for listening. Until next time.